So we have truly actually finished our study through the book of Acts. And uh, 15 months or so, and that book is finished. And from here, in a few weeks, we'll be moving on to the Old Testament book of Malachi. So if you want to get a jump on things, feel free to look ahead to Malachi, and um, we'll be pulling that one apart and uh, exploring God's Word together for several weeks through the book of Malachi. What that leaves me with is sort of one of these um, interesting timing one-off days, and um, I'm going to present to you this morning a bit of a topical message, which isn't what I would normally do. Um, but this sort of comes out of our conversations that we had at our last leaders retreat, where it, it sort of dawned on us that um, we've had a lot of changes through the last several years and a lot of challenges presented to us through the last several years. And it might be a good chance uh, at some point to come back to some of the basics, to talk about who we are and what we do and why we do it. And that's what I'm going to do uh, this morning uh, for the time remaining. Many years ago, I was asked to officiate a funeral service for a dear saint uh, who had gone on to be with the Lord. She had three children, three adult children, and they were responsible for designing the funeral service. And two of the uh, children, the adult children, had really no interest whatsoever in the faith that their mother professed. But one of them did. And he was the last one to weigh in on the service because he was literally the last one to make his way back to the state of Maine. And when he looked at the order of service or worship that we had put together for that funeral, he, he noticed that missing from it was any um, real reference to his mother's faith and to Jesus and to the gospel. This, these people wanted it to go a particular way. He wasn't trying to cause trouble, but he said to me, he said, do you think it would be possible for you maybe to put together and uh, offer us a gospel presentation. <laughs> and I said, I'd be a pretty poor preacher if I couldn't put together uh, and offer a gospel presentation. All of us who have come to trust in Jesus really ought to be able to explain and share the gospel with others. And I understand that certainly we can we can grasp the gospel and we can receive the gospel before we develop our skills at sharing it. But at some point along the line, we also have to be ready and, and able to share what the good news actually is and what it means. That is, if we're going to be obedient to do what Jesus commands us to do. Every believer should be able to explain the good news of salvation. And not only should we be able to um, articulate the straight-up gospel, the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the how we are saved, we also ought to be able to um, talk a bit about the why. Why are we saved? Why has God saved us? What is our purpose in this world? So I can't corroborate this claim, but I do trust the source of a preacher who in his writing noted the closing statement of a rather short-lived Christian institution posted on the door of their headquarters was a sign going out of business didn't know what our business was. <laughs> Can you see how that might happen in some churches? How it has happened in some churches? 
Just this week I read a timely article, came into my inbox. It said, it started this way, we are creatures of habit. If we don't find ways to remind ourselves why we do what we do, we're prone to just go through the motions, if not adopt some new underlying motivation altogether. It is possible to go out of business because we lose sight of what our business is. So let me ask you, friend, what is your business in this world? What is the business of the church? And when I say that, I don't mean it in the technical sense of a business that's trying to make money to survive or live. I mean, what is, what is um, our mission? What is it that drives us? What are we here for? Well, you know the answer. Jesus tells us the answer, gives us the answer in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where he says, go and make disciples. God saves us and God sends us into the world in order that we might lead others to him, to salvation. Maybe you've had that unfortunate experience many have of laboring at some point in your career under a nebulous job description. You know um, how frustrating it can be when what you think your job is is not what other people think your job is. And also when that, other, that thing, other duties as assigned, sort of takes over the entire thing. It's the taker of most of your time. It's frustrating to work under a nebulous job description, but you know with Jesus we are not lacking any clarity. Our Christ-ordained job description is to make disciples. And this morning I want to uh, speak broadly by way of reminder about how we try to do that here at United Baptist Church. Whether our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, where our, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through worship, through fellowship, and through service for the glory of God. We spent a lot of time historically clarifying our purpose for our congregation, and we did that so that we could all be on the same page. We worked on this years and years ago so that we could all um, speak the same language, we could all be striving for the same prize, so to speak, so that we could all be pulling in the same directions. We, we could be working toward the same end, even so that we would have a standard of sorts for trimming away things that didn't actually fit the mission or the vision and didn't help us to accomplish what we believe that Jesus wanted us to accomplish here on the corner of Hancock and Pine Streets in Ellsworth, Maine. And yet in the past few years, we've all noted, again, this was part of our leader retreat when we talked about some of these things. There have been lots of occasions and reasons to drift from the basics. The pandemic really took a toll on churches, and, and, uh, and we have struggled that way. And then in the meantime, we have so, been so blessed to gain members um, and worshipers who are part of us now and probably have never even really heard what the United Baptist Church is all about. And so we emerged from these difficult days and we seek to resume sort of a new, a new way of body life, it seems fitting to revisit by way of this message, the disciple-making purpose, the reason for our existence at this church. And our purpose is our process. Each of the three aspects that I'm going to describe briefly uh, is related to and if you think linearly builds on, on another. Worship is the foundation, fellowship generally flows out of the connections that we make in worship and service is the hallmark of a maturing Christian. So this morning we'll look, again, I think somewhat briefly at these three facets of the business, I put that in quotations of UBC, and the business of every professing believer of Jesus Christ, worship, fellowship, and service. Now, 
uh, obviously a full exploration of any of these would take a long time. And so, so there's no illusion here that this is some sort of comprehensive view. It just can't be. So I want to say that straight up. I'm just going to try to hit a couple of high points on each one of these things. But I also got to warn you, I will keep my eye on the clock, but these are three things that I am so passionate about that if we were just beside ourselves somewhere else, we could talk about them for hours. I won't do that to you today, but I feel like I could easily. Worship and fellowship and service, just the, the heartbeat of making disciples, and uh, so crucial. But I'll try to stick to the script. I will do my best. In fact, we should probably pray to that end. Uh, <laughs> Father, we, we again come before you now as we open up our hearts to the truth that you want us to receive implanted in our lives because we know that you want us to have that in us because it's going to change us. It's going to make us more um, like you, more malleable in your hands, more, um, more the church that you want us to be. And so we do pray for, um, for this time that it would be fruitful and productive for your kingdom. Um, pray that I can stay on track and keep it reasonable. And uh, Lord, that your spirit would move in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So worship, what is worship? Why is it important? What's the Bible say about it? Well, I want to start with this, friends. Worship is not just about participating in a gathering, in a corporate gathering of believers on Sundays. So it's not just about that, but catch this. It is always more than that, always more than the gathering, but listen, never less for those who are able. So worship is more than gathering on Sunday, week after week, but it's never less for those who are able. Biblically speaking, worship, declaring God's worth, is how we live every day. It, it, worship is showing with our words and with our deeds that God is a supreme value in our lives. And we orient our lives around Him. Worship is daily presenting ourselves to God for His will to be done. It's waking up in the morning and it's saying, Thank you, Lord, for another day. Uh, what would you like me to do today? What can I do for you today? Uh, as objects of His grace, as beneficiaries of His salvation, we Christians are instruments in His hands. That's why Romans 12 tells us, and that's where Paul instructs us, to present our bodies living in holy sacrifices to Him. And not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the Spirit, which he says is our spiritual worship. So worship is not just about participating in a corporate gathering of believers on Sundays. It is always more than that, but it is never less than that for those who are able. And I put that qualifier in there for those who are able because in our expectations for membership here allow, there are and will be occasions in a person's life where circumstances of health and mobility and perhaps even prudence, as we have experienced in the recent past, necessarily preclude participating in corporate worship for a time. But accepting these occasions, Christian worship does involve participating in the gathered church every Sunday that you are able. The case for consistent public worship in the house of God is present all through Scripture. Consider the temple worship of Israel. Consider the example of Jesus, who Luke tells us it was his custom to go to the synagogue every Sabbath. Consider the Apostle Paul as he was spreading the news of Christianity, doing the same thing on his missionary journeys. Consider the early church that was gathering publicly as long as it could until it got kicked out. And when it got kicked out, it began to gather in people's homes. This has always been part of, of the Christian experience um, the undeniable importance and expectation of public worship all through the history of God's people. 
And, and it is something, when you think of it, that is intended to set us apart from the world. Perhaps the clearest and most uh, referred to case for regular worship is found in Hebrews 10.25. And we are told there not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. And the Bible couldn't be more clear on this point. It says that we should not neglect worship. Don't, in other words, don't get out of the habit of public corporate gathering. That's what the Bible says. So brothers and sisters, you tell me this. Where are we as believers? Where some are going to hear this straight and unedited from the book of Hebrews. And classify the call to obedience in this area of our lives as optional or legalistic because it certainly is neither from a biblical point of view. If you are one of God's people, to not worship with God's people is to disobey this command, which means it is sin. Now, I grant you that sounds harsh, and it may even feel harsh. If you have fallen out of the habit of regular worship, it is not meant to be harsh. It is not meant to be condemning, but it is meant to jar our thinking on this matter and to consider the seriousness of its consequences. We seem to have a rather laissez-faire attitude about corporate worship, but the Bible will tell us that neglecting it is a sin against God. And I can tell you why it's a sin against God, and I know I'm probably meddling or peddling or hurting some feelings. I don't <laughs> intend to, but what it says when we get out of the habit of regular worship of God is that we found something we value more than him. I'm not talking about your occasional vacation. By all means, go have a great time, okay? I'm not talking about using caution or staying home. If you're feeling under the weather, please stay home. I'm talking about the conscious decision that one makes Lord's Day after Lord's Day to do something other than come and worship him. Maybe what keeps you away is something you believe is good or necessary. Beloved, do not underestimate the enemy's desire for you to substitute something seemingly good for what is truly best. He loves you to trade the eternally significant for that which is temporary and fleeting. He wants you to gain the whole world if it means you'll lose your soul. Now listen, it's true, it's simple. We do what we do because we want what we want. So to consistently neglect worship for something else means that something else matters more. The question is, what is it? What is it? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it idleness? Is it fear of man? Because you say no to worship in order to please someone's invitation for you to do something else on that day? You don't want to disappoint them? To miss worship is a sin against God. And further, as it is often the case with sin, it's a sin against others. It's a, it's a sin against God's people because the same scripture from Hebrews tells us our worship is meant to be a source of encouragement for others. One of the important principles of worship that we, that we maybe don't grasp so well here in the contemporary church is that we go to worship not just to receive but to give. That's as part of the purpose, God's purpose of worship. We think, we often think, and it's not a wrong thought or a bad thought, but it's just an incomplete thought that we're coming to worship to get. But in fact, the scripture will encourage us to, to remember that we are coming to give. 
And if one has the mindset always of a religious consumer when it comes to Sunday, then it makes sense that one would line up all the other options and the demands and the desires and make a choice based on what feels most appealing in the moment. In this case, and when that is true, it is the self that is being served. But if one recognizes, as the Bible teaches, that all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near, we ought to be faithful in our gathering so that we can come alongside each other and give courage to each other to persevere on a path of faithfulness, then that person understands the purpose and how crucial it is for fellow believers that she or he is present. I can put it very simply, church. We need you here. We all need you here. Your, your presence, if you're a member of this church, your presence on Sunday morning is essential. And you might wonder, I, I don't know exactly what it is I would bring to the table that is so important. I want, to, I want to suggest this, that worship begins for us when we arrive. It may begin in a parking lot conversation, certainly in the hallway, the meeting rooms. Then in sharing ideas and, and inspiration as we open God's word in Sunday school classes. How encouraging do you think it is for the youth to see adults committed to still learning about Jesus? And how we, all, we already know how encouraging it is for us older saints to see youth excited about learning about Jesus. Then there is catching up over coffee where we, we often do gain insight in a, a window into each other's lives. And occasionally we bear one of those burdens right in that moment. And that's the hospitality which the Bible commands us to practice. And then we go into a worship service together in a full sanctuary. It inspires us that there really is light in the dark world. Amen? There is light in a dark world. There are all kinds of light in this dark world. All kinds of representatives of this light. And we sing to God and Bible-based lyrics move us the way that they ought to move us. And we read and we hear the gospel the sacred scripture. We pray, always acknowledging our dependence on our great God. This, by the way, is another subtle indication of the drift away from worship. We lose sight of just how much we really need God. And, and we diminish how much we really need his people. In other words, to say we become self-sufficient. And whenever we become self-sufficient that way, that is really a road to more problems. Brothers and sisters, God commands our regular worship. And rather than look at that as some onerous or unreasonable requirement. And who hasn't been there and who isn't there from time to time? But I distinctly remember being a younger man and not so excited about this. Do I have to go? What at all? I'm 59 now and my wife says, yes, you have to go, get out of bed. <laughs> oh, thank the Lord I'm past that. But it, it can be that way, can it? That it, worship can, can feel like uh, one more thing. But it isn't one more thing. It's one of the most important things that you can ever do. And it's not an unreasonable or an onerous requirement that God places on us to gather and praise him for, for an hour or two. He directs us to do it for our good because that's how he is. And for his glory because that's what he deserves. We worship because he's worthy of our time. And he's worthy of our effort. Again, it's not just about participating. Worship's not just about participating in a corporate gathering of believers on Sundays. It's always more than that, but it's never less than that for those who are able. 
Disciples are made through worship. They're also made through fellowship. What is fellowship and why is it important? And what does the Bible say about it? Fellowship is a word, has a range of meanings. It has uh, social and spiritual implication. Fellowship is what the early church members in Acts enjoyed so much. We just came through that book, Acts chapter 2. They had all things in common from a Greek word, koinonia, which has that, that uh, understanding of holding things in common. Biblical fellowship then is sharing life. Having life in common, participation in church life, moving through life together. So when we talk about fellowship at United Baptist, we're talking about living in community. We're talking about mutual cooperation in God's worship and God's work. We're talking about a, a mutual commitment to seeing that the Lord's will is being done. And fellowship means um, that we grow as Christians that's what fellowship does to us. We grow as Christians in the context of community. We do agree with the poet John Donne, no man is an island. The Apostle Paul voiced this a little bit differently. Uh, long before Donne, we are connected to one another, he would say, as a body in 1 Corinthians. And we need each other. And no part of our body can say that we have no need of the other. And the word of God is absolutely right when it says it's not good that man should dwell alone. And Proverbs 27, 17 tells us iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Maybe you have a dull knife in a drawer at your house. I bet you do. I know I have a lot of them. You can still use that dull knife, but it, it, it really, um, it'll probably still cut something. But it doesn't cut like it used to, and it doesn't cut like it should. It's definitely less effective, isn't it, when it's less sharp. And some would argue more dangerous. But definitely less effective. We Christians need fellow Christians to keep an edge on our spiritual lives, to keep us honed, to keep us sharp. We need each other, and we get that through regular fellowship. Fellowship is one of the means by which we deepen friendships. We've said it many times now, beyond becoming a friendly church, it is our desire to be a church of friends. True friends are faithful to encourage, to confront, and to comfort. In times of fellowship, we develop the bonds and we provide the space for these sorts of transforming acts to happen. And in fellowship, we learn together. We know that a disciple is a learner and a follower. Jesus told us to make learners and followers, Christians who know and obey what he commands. This is the aim of our many discipleship groups. It's, it's to assist us in learning, to instruct us and equip us to live the Christian life. It's to spiritually mature us. To be a disciple of Jesus is to always be learning, to be growing, and to be more conformed to Jesus all the time. And you don't think that you've arrived yet, do you, Christian? You don't think you're done. No. We know that. I mean, there was probably a sense once in our life when we thought we were, or at least would be. I know, I remember how discouraged I was as a young man to realize, this is going to take my whole life. <laughs> Can I just go to college and get a degree and be smart enough and be done? Absolutely not when it comes to following Jesus and being conformed to it. We are lifelong learners, in other words, and this is how God intends it to be on this side of things. And that's what fellowship is about. Fellowship is one of the ways that we help everyone to grow up in Christ. You know, that's what the Bible tells us. That's, the, that, that's what the Bible says. Grow up. Grow up to him, in him, the head. We read that in Ephesians. And fellowship helps us to grow up. 
It, it, another way to say that is it, it stops us from remaining babies in the faith. And the writer of Hebrews cautions us against that, about remaining as a babe. You see, because a church can, can be filled with uh, spiritual babies, but uh, a missional church can't. Like a church can be filled with, mission, with babies, spiritual babies, but a missional church requires mature disciples of Jesus because babies can't care for themselves. Babies have to be taken care of, and yet Jesus has given us the mandate, what, to go out and care for the world. Well, that means that we have to grow in him so that we can go and do what he tells us to do. And that brings us to the third aspect of our disciple-making process, which is service. So worship, fellowship, and service. What is service? Why is it important? What does the Bible say about it? Service is an essential ingredient in making disciples because Jesus commands us to serve. Kind of, kind of that works. You know, a lot of times, um, because I said so doesn't work, but, but if it's Jesus doing the saying so, that should work. It should work for us. And that's what we read in the passage from John chapter 13. He washed his disciples' feet. He was, he was willing to wash their feet, but then he told them to go and do the same thing. I have given you an example. That you, you would go and do what, what I have done. And we can take that literally and, and wash people's feet. We certainly can take it figuratively. Because what Jesus is saying is this, let no act of service be beneath you. Why? Well, because a servant is not greater than his master, is he? And if our master is willing to bow his knee and get on the ground and wash dirty feet, if he will willingly take on the greatest and the least of the tasks, so should we be willing to do that. In fact, we see serving is so important in the life of discipleship that our ministry leaders set a goal at our retreat this last August that I've mentioned a couple of times. And that goal is this to have 100% of our members involved in some kind of meaningful service. 100% involved in some kind of meaningful service. Anyway, well, that's a big goal. Nobody ever sets a goal for 100%. You'd have to give me a reason why somebody couldn't serve or wouldn't serve. And we can define service broadly. In fact, we do. I have dear saints now who've been so active in the church and they were the doers, and they were the ones that kept the thing running and moving and going. And now they come to me and they say something along the lines of, Pastor, all I can do is pray. I'm like, man, that's what we need. That's meaningful service. You do not have to bake any more pies. Please pray. Yeah? Let someone else take care of the pie. Never mind. They don't cook pies anymore. They'll buy a pie. Please pray. Meaningful service. So when we say that, we're not talking about everybody grabbing a snow shovel in February. We're talking about plugging in where you can plug in for the kingdom of God to move it forward, but in meaningful service so that you understand I'm part of the disciple-making process of the United Baptist Church. 100% of us. That's what we're shooting for, so get ready. Somebody be knocking on your door. You've heard this many times, but I started off with the caution of mission drift, of forgetting our business. What is our business? We are saved for God's glory. Remember that study in Exodus that we took so long to get through Exodus? What a great book. Saved for God's glory. And you know what that means, translating here into this element of service, is that we are saved to serve. And where I get that is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, we are saved to serve. These good works are not just some random acts of kindness that can be attributed to a person's good nature. They are the sort that can be directly linked to one's relationship with God, that are inspired by God, that are credited to God. This is what it means to love well, because we have been first loved. So we are loved by God, and we go out into this world, and we love others, not because of our good nature, not because of our good upbringing, but because the love of Jesus is, is flowing out of us. And it is so obvious that people aren't just going to say, well, that's a nice person. They're going to be saying, wow, that person is devoted to God. That's what Jesus is getting at. Not, your good works don't call attention to you. They call attention to your heavenly Father. The old hymn writer put it this way, I will serve thee. Because I love thee, you have given life to me. I was nothing before you found me. You have given life to me. So just like worship, serving the Lord can be seen as an onerous requirement. But here's what it's supposed to be. It's, it should be a joyful response. Again, we wake up in the morning and we thank the Lord for another day, another opportunity, but God, what can I do for you and your kingdom today? You saved me. You called me. Jesus, you shed your blood for me. You took my sin. You gave me your righteousness. It makes only makes sense that I would joyfully respond to that by giving my life to God. What can I do for the Lord? What, how, Lord, how, what have you made me to do? How can I employ my gifts, my skills, my passions for the good of your kingdom? So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, and I pray this is an encouragement. I always fear when you, when you, when you talk this way somewhat topically, you know, it, it can almost feel to some people like a browbeating. It certainly is not. I hope it's an encouragement. But we are saved to serve. We are not saved to sit. We are saved to serve. Or to put it another way, every member a minister. Every member a minister. Now, we're Protestant. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, don't we? Yes. <laughs> well, maybe for a second I was in the wrong church. We absolutely believe in the priesthood of all believers. We know that God has called us to mediate his goodness and his grace to this world. We know that's our job. Amen. We are, there we go. Somebody's awake. <laughs> we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. And every member is a minister. So it isn't one of those situations where you go, well, we better leave that to the professionals. That's what the world does. We're all ministers. So we must minister. How much difference in a community could a church make whose members are all engaged in some kind of serving in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ? Think about that. 
How much difference could that church make if every believer was committed to serving in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Christ? And another question, what would prevent us from being that church? The English theologian Thomas Cramner would, uh, would answer that question by pointing to the heart. The heart is the source of why we do what we do. Well, why we do some things, why we don't do other things. And he wrote this, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The heart's desires come first. So what is your heart's desire today? What are you living for? What are you building? Do you want to be a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus? Do you want to live for the glory of God truly, honestly? Because a heart's desires dictate how or if we will worship, we will fellowship, we will serve. The heart's desires dictate if we will live for him or something else. And so we sing prayerfully to God in conclusion of this worship service, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure Thou art. Let's stand and sing together. Our